view of where we have been in the, the life and teachings of Jesus up to this point. <clears throat> so we began uh, several months ago in John chapter 1 where we saw that Jesus actually existed before the worlds began. And uh, so that was the passage, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we came to uh, his birth in Bethlehem of Judea. And uh, so we, we saw how that uh, the shepherds came and how that uh, later on the, the wise men came. And, uh, and then we know almost nothing about Jesus. He went into Egypt, came out of Egypt, and then uh, lived in, uh, in Galilee till he was about 12 years old. And at 12 years old, then we had that story of him in the temple talking with the, uh, the experts in the law. And then we don't hear anything more about Jesus until he gets baptized. And so we have already uh, encountered the passage with John the Baptist and what, what he was preaching. And then Jesus comes and uh, he baptizes Jesus. And then immediately Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days. And at the conclusion of those 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. And uh, now, in the passage of Scripture, we find Jesus for the first time back from his temptation in the wilderness, and he once again attends the the ministry of John the Baptist. And so he goes to the place where John is baptizing, and uh, that's where our text begins today. And uh, so part of this text is about John the Baptist, very important for us to know about John the Baptist. And then the second part of this text is about Jesus. But uh, beginning with verse 19, here's what we read. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Only two points to the message this morning. 
the first one is John's testimony about himself, and then secondly, John's testimony about Jesus. To introduce John's testimony about himself, uh, I want to tell you one of my favorite sayings. It's this, no matter how hard you try, you cannot fall off the floor. No matter how hard you try, you cannot fall off the floor. And then this from Pilgrim's Progress, the second part. The uh, travelers come across a poor boy. He's just a shepherd boy and he's dressed in rags. And uh, as they approach him, they hear him singing a little song that has these words. He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I'm content with what I have, little be it or much. And Lord, contentment still I crave because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is who go on pilgrimage. Here little and hereafter bliss is best from age to age. And one of the one of the travelers in the group, I think it was Mr. Greatheart, said, I dare say that this young shepherd's boy, clothed in rags, knows more of that herb called heart's ease than many a one who is dwelling in a palace. He that is down need fear no fall, he that is low no pride. And then in recent weeks I have just been gaining gaining so much blessing from this song, which I love so much, and I think that we need to teach it to our children and young people, and I'll try to arrange for that to happen soon. This is the little song. There are a couple of things in here that I I want you to pay close attention to. One is the song says, I'm content to fill a little space if God be glorified. Content to fill a little space if God be glorified. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. I do not fear, I do not fear to face the changes. I can't remember. I thought I'd remember it better if I sang it. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind, content with pleasing thee. So I I don't want to always be thinking about what's coming in the future or what happened in the past. I ask thee for a present mind, content with pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that rushes to and fro seeking for some great thing to do or secret truth to know. I would be guided as a child, guided where I go. So I'm not always looking for some great thing to do. I'm not always looking for some secret truth to know. I'm happy to be treated like a child. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied. The will, to bend, the will to blend in outward life while keeping by thy side. So I, I, don't, 
I don't want to always be standing out and drawing attention to myself. The will to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little place if thou be glorified. And then this fourth stanza, just such a marvelous truth to take to heart. In service which thy will commands, there are no bonds for me. I mean, if God has told me to do it, I need to stop looking at it like it's some kind of a big burden and stop complaining about it. Has God told you to do it? Then do it cheerfully. Don't act like God is some kind of a mean taskmaster to have you doing all this stuff that that we've been complaining about. In service which thy will commands, there are no bonds for me. My will has learned... uh, Let me see, I have to think here for a minute. In in service which thy will commands, there are no, no, no bonds for me. My heart has learned the secret truth which makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Now that is a, a very good song for anybody to memorize, but I especially want our children to learn to sing that song, and Lord willing, in the weeks to come, I'll try to teach it on Wednesday nights. Those three introductory comments, my, my one of my favorite sayings, no matter how hard you try, you can't fall off the floor. And then the song of the shepherd's boy, he that is down need fear no fall. And then I'm content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. That is the way to be happy. There is so much misery in this world, so much misery in my life, so much misery in your life, because we think people are disrespecting me. They're not giving me the due. They're not recognizing my talent. I, I deserve to have more recognition than I'm getting. I deserve to have more respect than I'm getting. And uh, how much happier we would be if we just learned to say, I'm content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. I've told you this story before, but it, it bears telling again. When, uh, when the girls were little, not all of them had yet been born, the older ones were so little, we visited a friend's house, and uh, he had uh, recently come from his in-law's farm where there was a peacock, and this peacock had shed his feathers, and so he had a vase full of beautiful peacock feathers. But if you've ever seen peacock feathers, not every one of them has that gorgeous iridescent eye on it that we so associate with peacock feathers. Some of them are just feathery feathers. They're still pretty, but they're not like the really gorgeous ones. And so my friend handed out, first of all, a big feather with a beautiful eye on it to Elizabeth. And then he handed out a beautiful feather with an eye on it to Abigail. And then he just held, got one of the plain feathers and gave it to Hannah. And Hannah was about three or four years old, just a little thing. And, of course, Hannah can tell that she's got a lame feather. But uh, she didn't say a word. She said, thank you. 
And, I mean, she did say a word. She said, thank you. But she didn't say a word of complaint. And so I went over, and she's just about three feet tall, and I knelt down on my knee beside her and, and whispered to her so no one could hear, don't you like your feather? And she said, oh, it's good enough for me. And then something inside my daddy heart says, Oh, no, it's not, little girl. We're going to get you a whole peacock. (laughs) And I think that uh, our Father in heaven has that same kind of reaction. When we humbly and quietly say, Well, this is good enough for me. And God says, well, we'll just see about that. We'll see what's good enough for you. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. One time, well, more than once, we read on at least two occasions where the disciples were having a disagreement among themselves as to which of them was going to be the greatest. And Jesus took a little child and brought him and had him stand in the midst. And he said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must humble yourself and become like a little child. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must learn to be the servant of all. And that's all fine to sing about and to preach about and to say amen to until somebody asks you to do something that you think to yourself, they're treating me like I'm their slave. And then's the time for us to remember You want to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all. Learn from a great, great man like John the Baptist. A man who had such immense talent and such such power in preaching that there were multitudes of people that were coming to listen to him preach. And he began to draw so much attention and create such a stir that even the religious establishment who, who probably dreaded the idea of lowering themselves to go and listen to such a country bumpkin preacher as John the Baptist must have been, they even went to say, we need to find out what this guy is doing. And uh, so they go to him and they ask him three questions. Are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm not the Christ. But just think about it. He was creating such a stir and getting so much attention that that was a possibility. Are you the Christ? And he said, I am not. And then they asked him a second question. Are you Elijah? Now, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come. And so they were looking for a reincarnation of the literal man, Elijah. And so when they asked him, Are you Elijah? They were asking him, are you the literal reincarnation of Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Now, how do we reconcile that with the the statement that uh, Jesus made after they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration? And his disciples asked him, "The, uh, the teachers of the law say that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah. And you're the Messiah. I mean... What happened to Elijah? And Jesus said, well, Elijah has come, and they did to him as they pleased. 
And then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is not lying here. John the Baptist is answering the question that they asked. Are you a literal reincarnation of Elijah? No. But he was the prophet that was sent in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he fulfilled the Old Testament prediction that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And Jesus recognized that he was that Elijah. But here John the Baptist says, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the person you're, you're asking. Reminds me of uh, some good advice that I want to give you. If someone asks you, are you a Calvinist, you probably should say, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could you ask me that question without using that word? Because the fact of the matter is, most people don't know what a Calvinist is. And uh, I, I one time, I learned that lesson the hard way. Someone asked me, are you a Calvinist? I said, yes, I am. And then I saw the look on his face and I said, well, wait a minute. What do you think a Calvinist is? And he explained to me what he thought a Calvinist was, and it was something that I was not. And so I said, well, no, if that's what you mean by Calvinist, I am not that. And so that's what John the Baptist does here. I know what you're asking me. You're asking me, am I a literal reincarnation of Elijah? And the answer to that question is no. And so then they asked him a third question. Uh, Are you the prophet? And uh, the, the prophet was someone who was predicted by Moses. Moses said, after me, God will raise up another prophet. Everyone who does not submit to him will be completely cut off from my people. Now, Jesus, uh, Moses was predicting Jesus and calling him the prophet. And uh, just note this. What did Moses say about Jesus? He said, anyone who does not submit to him will be completely cut off from my people. So who are the people of God? The people of God are those who submit to Jesus. Who is not among the people of God? Everyone who rejects Jesus as the Messiah is cut off from the people of God. I emphasize that because there's a lot of confused teaching today that indicates that there are Two peoples of God. There is the nation of Israel, which constitutes one people of God, and then there are Christians, which constitute the other people of God. That's not, a, that's not according to the Bible. The Bible says, whoever does not submit to Jesus is cut off from being the people of God. At the end of Romans chapter 2, it says, a man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And so uh, I, I mentioned that. It's a very, very popular, very confusing teaching that there are two separate peoples of God. Not true. If you want to be part of the people of God, you must be born again and receive Jesus as your prophet, your priest, and your king. And so, after John the Baptist said no to all three of those questions, then they said, then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you baptizing? 
Now, baptizing, as John was practicing it, was, I believe, a new uh, ritual. But there had been cleansing rituals under the Old Testament. Now, baptism is a cleansing ritual. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But under the Old Testament, if someone had, uh, if, 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 let's say the Israelites uh, conquered a nation and uh, they uh, took one of, the, one of the women there to be a wife, then there were special uh, cleansing rituals that this person had to go through, this woman had to go through, before she could be the wife of an Israelite. And so you can read about those uh, in the first five books of the Bible. Similarly, if a man was going to become part of Israel, he had to be circumcised and there were certain cleansing rituals that he had to go through. And the, 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 the implication is plain. These people are unclean. We, the people of God, are clean. Other people are not clean. Now, baptism is a cleansing ritual. I think that it was a new way of doing things, but it was su- and it was such a new way of doing things that the religious authorities of that day thought, this guy must think that he is someone special because he's administering this cleansing ritual. And he is administering it to Jews. There's no indication at all that there were any non-Jews who were present at the ministry of John the Baptist. I think that that consideration is relevant as we think about who ought to be baptized. Now, those who baptize babies say that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. I think they run into a little problem here, although I'm sure they've got a way of explaining it. Here were men who had already been circumcised. They had already received the sign of the covenant. So why do they have to receive the sign of the covenant again? Why, did, why do circumcised Jews who have already received the sign of the covenant have to receive baptism as a sign of the covenant? Uh, so I think that's relevant as we think about whether or not infants ought to be baptized. <clears throat> I, I think that uh, the practice of John the Baptist has been the practice of uh, a few of God's people, at least throughout the ages, that before, before you can go through a cleansing ritual you must have give, give some evidence that you think you're dirty and need to be cleaned up, which is a way of talking about repentance. Now, I'm sure that you have been around uh, people who were, who were dressed nice and uh, maybe someone in your family uh, who is dressed nice and uh, who, who, who has good personal hygiene, and then you see them uh, say, oh, I smell something. My deodorant must be failing me. <laughs> and, uh, like, but, <clears throat> I mean, but nobody else in that room knows it. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm the only person who knows this. Now, in contrast to that, <clears throat> I have been around some people that everybody in the room knew they were there and that they needed a bath. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in the neighborhood where I grew up, it wasn't in a town. It was in a, a road that snaked through the woods. Uh, there was a family that lived, lived there for uh, two or three years. They didn't live there long. And if the wind was blowing from their house to you, you smelled it. 
They didn't have pigs. They didn't have chickens. They just had dirty bodies. And if you were going to invite one of those children to come and uh, spend the night at your house, you would find some way to get that kid in the bathtub. Because you thought, I, I, if, if they sleep on the bed, we'll have to throw the mattress away. There's just <laughs> no way that we're ever going to get this stink. Now, I don't know if you have ever been around people who, who stink that bad. But uh, believe me, there is no stink, not hogs, not chickens, not pigs. Hogs and pigs. Uh, there, that smell is bad as a really downright dirty human being. Now, that is, that is the sort of thing that leads people spiritually to say, I need a bath. And, and the bath that baptism symbolizes is a bath that somebody else has to give you spiritually because you know that water cannot wash away your sins. And this is why John the Baptist said to those who came to be baptized to him, who didn't think that they needed a bath... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on, after after John the Baptist was dead, Jesus says to the crowd, You rejected God's purpose for yourselves. Because the publicans, the tax collectors, and uh, the prostitutes, they submitted to the baptism by John, but you did not submit. You thought you were okay. You thought you didn't need the bath. Baptism, water baptism, as I point to the, the baptistry behind me, water baptism is for people who have come to Jesus and said, Lord, I am so dirty that I'm not fit to sleep in your bed in your house. And I need you to clean me up. I need you to cleanse me. And then when the Lord has cleansed you spiritually, then being baptized in water is a way of saying, God, through Jesus Christ, has given me a bath. And that's what baptism represents. And so John says concerning himself... I'm not, the, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And there's something honorable about that. I mean, the Old Testament predicted that I was going to have this ministry. There's something honorable about that. But there's also something humbling about that because he's just the voice. I am just the voice. The real powerful and the real important one is someone else. And that's an especially difficult uh, pill to swallow for someone who is as massively talented as John the Baptist was. But he said, I'm going to take all of my talents and I'm going to submit them to making someone else great. It's similar to uh, what a talented, intelligent, godly woman does when she says, I am going to submit to the man that's becoming my husband. I'm not going to try to make life about me and about how important I am. I am going to submit my talents and abilities and gifts to supporting and encouraging this man that the Lord has given me as a husband. 
It is an honorable thing to do, but it is also a humbling thing to do. And that's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist said, there's someone, there's someone coming after me that is so great, I'm not even worthy to touch his, his sandals. Uh, there's one who comes after me, the, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, I dare say that John the Baptist had learned the secret truth that uh, a life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Later on, Jesus would say concerning John the Baptist, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And one of the things that made him so great was that he was so willing to humble himself and submit his talents and abilities to be the voice that prepared the way for Jesus. But now let's see what John says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has just come back from the wilderness where he's been tempted by the devil. And now John sees him coming toward him and he says, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let's think about that wonderful statement. First of all, why does John call Jesus the Lamb? Why does he call him the Lamb? And I can think of three extraordinarily good reasons. One reason is that I wonder, did John have in mind Genesis chapter 22, the passage of Scripture that we read for our first Scripture reading, where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And as they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to his father, Father, Abraham says, here I am. Here is the wood. Here is the fire to set the wood on fire. But where is the lamb? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. And I wonder, did John the Baptist have that passage of Scripture in mind? When he said, here he is, the father of our faith. Abraham said one day, God will provide himself a lamb. Our forefather Isaac asked, where is the lamb? And then John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, here he is. Behold the Lamb. I think that uh, there's another possibility of why he is called the Lamb. And, uh, of course, John the Baptist would have been very familiar with all the Old Testament scriptures. And he would have been familiar, he himself being a priest, with the responsibility to, to offer a sacrifice every morning and every evening at the temple. And uh, throughout the, the sacrificial prescriptions that were made by God, there were other animals that were to be sacrificed. You could sacrifice a goat. You could sacrifice a cow. Uh, you could sacrifice uh, pigeons and doves. So why is Jesus called the lamb instead of the pigeon of God or instead of the bullock of God? He's called the lamb of God. And I think that it could be because the sacrifice that was offered most regularly every day during the week was a lamb. In the morning and in the evening, a lamb was to be sacrificed. And then I think that there is a third very strong viable possibility as to why John the Baptist calls Jesus the lamb. And that's because in Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about uh, the suffering servant giving himself as a sacrifice for sinners... It says, he is led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb or mute. 
so he openeth not his mouth. And so John the Baptist would have been familiar with with all of these. Uh, From our perspective, I think that the most impressive sacrifice that the Jews were called upon to offer is the lamb, but it could be because we are reading back Jesus is the Lamb of God, and that's why, that's why we are so impressed with, with uh, the lambs being offered. But John the Baptist, I think, calls him the Lamb uh, for pr- probably, perhaps a combination of all three of those reasons. Isaac's question, where is the Lamb? The morning and evening sacrifice at the temple, and then also the statement in Isaiah chapter 53, he's led as a lamb to the slaughter. But John doesn't just call him, behold the Lamb. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Why is he called the Lamb of God? Well, he is the Lamb that has been sent by God. He is the Lamb that the Father has appointed to offer up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. He was the Lamb appointed by God. He is the Lamb approved by God. He is the Lamb who would eventually satisfy God. He is the Lamb of God. And then John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word that is translated here, takes away, could also be translated, bears away. It is in the present tense. And I think that there are a couple of ways that Jesus bears away the, uh, the sins of the world. For one thing, he acts as a substitute and he takes away the penalty of sin so that in God's sight we are now justified, so that we are no longer uh, held accountable for the sins that we have committed because Jesus has taken them upon himself and has borne them away. He is the Lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. So I think it refers to laying down the basis for justification. But I also think that Jesus is the Lamb of God and he bears away the sin of the world because he changes the people that he, that he saves. We no longer continue to want to play in the dirt that made us so filthy in the first place. He changes our hearts so that we want him to take away our sin from us. And so he bears away the sins of the world laying the basis for justification and then also providing for sanctification after we have come to him to be cleansed. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he takes away sins, and it's not just one nation for whom he performs this service. It is for people from all nations who will Receive him as their sin bearer. It's for you. It's for me. If we will receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, then he will bear our sins away. You might say, well, if he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, why may he not be the Lamb of God who takes away my sins? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the first thing that John says about him. And then secondly, in verse 30 he makes reference to what's kind of an enigmatic saying. Listen to what he says. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. There's someone coming after me who was before me. Well, how can that be? How can that be? And the answer is 
John is recognizing that Jesus has an eternal nature. And that even though Jesus is six months younger than John the Baptist, that Jesus was in fact prior to John the Baptist because he is the Son of God, which he states very plainly later on. John, uh, so John testifies that he is the Lamb of God. He testifies that he is the eternal God. And then John says in verse 33, or verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John says, This is the one who is going to do really, do literally, the sort of thing that I have been doing symbolically in baptizing. He is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was something that happened when uh, the day of Pentecost came and the Jewish believers were baptized. And then later on, when the gospel spread to the Gentiles, there was a time when they also were baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't think that baptism in the Holy Spirit, as it is described here, is something that we should pray for. I don't think that it's something that happens to uh, believers individually. Uh, I, th- I think that we should pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should pray to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and to see the world through the perspective that the Holy Spirit gives us. But I think that what's being referred to here is something that happened when, when Jesus inaugurated the, the kingdom of God in a way that it had not been present before. And I think that's implied when, uh, when John the Baptist says, "...he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." The Holy Spirit had been present and active in the world up to this point. No one Old Testament can be converted unless the Holy Spirit has been at work. So the Holy Spirit was present. But the Holy Spirit's work under the Old Covenant was, was just like a, a, dripping, a, a dripping faucet in comparison to the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament, which is like a gushing waterfall. And uh, so... John the Baptist says concerning Jesus, he is going to bring about a new state of a thing, a new state of things that corresponds to what I have been doing in water. There's going to be a cleansing, and after that, a, an entrance into a new state of things, and that's what Jesus did. So, John the Baptist says concerning Jesus, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the eternal God who was in existence before I was in existence, even though he's younger than I am. Thirdly, he is the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then finally and plainly in verse 34, he says, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so he's, he's not just a spirit-filled man. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And the, uh, there's a certain sense in which you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. But uh, none of us are sons and daughters of God, of course, in the way that Jesus himself is the Son of God. When Jesus said, God is my Father, the people of his day became angry with him because they recognized that he was making himself equal with God. And so he was. You and I, you and I are not doing that when we say we're sons and daughters of God. We recognize that we are in no way 
equal to God. But when Jesus said it, and when John the Baptist said concerning Jesus, he is the Son of God, he was making a claim about his divine nature. He is God come down to earth. And so uh, this is the Savior that I preach to you today. Do you feel the, the dirtiness and the filthiness of your sin? Then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He can clean you up. He can make you new. He is able to <coughs> bear away your sin so that you are no longer obnoxious in the eyes of God. And he is able to take away your sin so that you're no longer under sin's dominion in the way that you once were. And so, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Receive him as your Lord and Savior, and you will be forgiven. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.